Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fourth episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and this week I have an extra special guest. She is one of my very best friends, and you are in for a treat this week, because once we get going over a bottle of wine, not much can stop us. My guest co-host this week is Deirdre Crunch Novel. Hello, Deirdre. How are you doing? Good. Hi, Liam. How are you? Oh, I'm good. It's so great to see you, even though it's virtual. (laughs) It's awesome to be here with you. Yes, like several hundred miles away at this point. Um, (laughs) Deirdre is a digital PR strategist with GoFish Digital in Raleigh, North Carolina. But we met at Elon University in Elon, North Carolina, where we both studied journalism. And Deirdre, do you think I should tell everyone, like, how we met? Or is that too much? Um, I don't know. How long do you want this podcast to be? Is it like one of those 24-hour streaming sessions? Or <laughs> do we need I do, to keep it? I do think that is probably like a whole episode in and of itself, probably. Um, yeah, I think we're probably going to skip that. And like, for everyone listening, like, big inside joke, like, and I promise you it's not even worth it for me to fill you in on what we're talking about. <laughs> so this week we are drinking 19 Crimes Pinot Noir. It's from South Eastern Australia and says it turned convicts into colonists. And a little history on that. According to the label, British rogues were sentenced to Australia rather than sentenced to death, which is what turned the country actually into a British jail colony. So this wine celebrates the rules they broke and the culture that they built. And it's also a wine with a talking label. I didn't know this until I just recently looked into this. Have you ever heard of this, Deirdre? No, no. I haven't. So if you download the Living Wine Labels app, you can hear the story of the convict on the labels. That's really cool. So should we like bust this open? Like I'm ready for this. Yes, please. please. Okay, let's do it. So I don't, I feel like I probably have had this one before, but I'm not like usually a big um, like Pinot Noir drinker. Like I usually go for Cabernet's. Um, so I'm really interested in this one. I feel like I've had their like white before. Have you have you ever drank them before? No, I haven't, but I was happy you picked a red. I'm definitely like a red over white kind mm. of gal. And I also always go for the Cabernet. So I was excited to kind of mm. try something new. I like literally buy the same like three different bottles on route. <laughs> <Same. laughs> so this the, is good for me. The, I went to the to the liquor store the other day and bought um and tried to like branch out and like got a different bottle of wine than what I normally get. And the guy behind the register, first of all, recognized me from like multiple times I've been in there. And second of all, been was like, oh, you're trying something different this week, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that just goes to show you like where I'm at, I guess. So yeah, I heard that, like, it's good for your brain to do, just, like, try different things to build new, like, mm. neural pathways in your brain, and that was one oh. of my New Year's, like, resolutions. Oh, like, I'm that's I'm gonna just, fun. like, build some more pathways by mixing up my day, so thank you. You helped. <laughs> <laughs> I love Just, that. like, changing Excellent. your routine a little bit. Oh, I love that. I really love that. I think I may try that, too. Like, why not? You know what else we should try? What? This glass of wine. Okay, let's do it. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Wow, I didn't take, I did not take a tasting sip. I took like a major mouthful. So I will, like people who listen to our very first episode um, will remember when Claire and I were talking about like the like specific ways that you're supposed to be able to taste wine. Um, Just to be clear, I have not done that one single time since that first episode. So I'm not like a wine expert by any means. But you know what? I think we're going to, that's going to be my New Year's resolution is we're going to actually taste the wine and not just drink the wine. 
Yeah, I want to know how to like properly fake it. Like I want to know how to swirl my glass properly. Like I don't I don't need to understand it. I just want to know how to appear as if I do. So, yeah, so like my like fake research that I don't that I didn't listen to, you're supposed to like swish it around for like 15 seconds, but you're after you let it aerate 15 for like seconds? 15 seconds, isn't that crazy? So, yeah, so you're supposed to do that and then but after letting it aerate for like a variable amount of time, like depending on what kind of wine it is, I suppose, so you're supposed to open it and let it just like breathe for a little bit and then you're supposed to smell it. And then you're supposed to, then you're supposed to take a small sip and like swish it around your entire mouth. Wow. I like this one. I think it it's, has very bold flavors, which I appreciate because, you know, I like bold wine. Um, and it also, but it also has like a very good amount of fruitiness. You know what I mean? I was going to say fruity too. Mm-hmm. Like I definitely taste the fruity. Because I almost feel like sometimes too fruity is like, is too much. Like, you know, like there's a very fine line. Like, I don't know if it's just my taste buds. Um, because some people really do like fruity wine, but I'm not one of those people. Yeah, I agree. And I would say this is like pretty fruity, but it's not Mm. like sweet, which I'm more of like, Mm -hmm. I'm more anti-sweet than anti-fruit. So this is good. This is why I love you. Um, because the last (laughs) couple of weeks I've had people on, they've all been about the sweet wine boat. And I just don't appreciate that. I don't need, I don't need that in my life. I was a little, yeah, I was a little scared you're going to like pick a rosé or something and I was gonna have to like fake it suffer from a serious headache tomorrow morning (laughs) so (laughs) so do you think we should get into our story this week yeah I heard this is a podcast that is also about crime like like it's not purely about wine so maybe maybe it's time (laughs) (laughs) okay let's do it so Deirdre, this week I am going to tell you a story that if you haven't heard it before, I promise you, you will never forget it. I'm going to tell you about a group of people that followed a man until the end of the line, and they likely truly believed they were doing something much bigger than themselves. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of Jim Jones and the Jonestown Massacre. People who have heard of Jim Jones before won't be necessarily surprised to learn that friends and family described him as odd growing up. He was obsessed with religion and death. Jeff Ginn wrote in a book called The Road to Jonestown that he was also really interested in Adolf Hitler. Ginn wrote, quote, When Hitler committed suicide in 1945, thwarting enemies who sought to capture and humiliate him, Jimmy was impressed, end quote. Rolling Stone reported that as a child, Jim would make his playmates his captive audience, even locking them in the loft of his family's barn a few times. I couldn't find exactly what he was telling them back then, but eventually he would go on to preach racial and social equality in a way that was a bit unconventional, at the very least it was at the time. But he had no theological training formally and was not associated with any particular denomination. He would go on to open his own church in Indianapolis, Indiana in the 1950s and in the 1960s. The church would officially become the People's Temple, Disciples of Christ. It was a racially integrated church, which was controversial for the time, given this was, of course, the height of the segregation era. Jim was particularly interested, though, in a controversial figure in the religious community. Father Divine was a black evangelist born in the 1880s and the founder of the Peace Mission Movement, 
but his following really picked up in the 1910s in Pennsylvania. Followers said they looked at him as God. The movement's website says it claims to accomplish three things. One, to prove to the world the gospel can be preached without money and without price. Two, that Christ died that we might live and not that we must die and go to the grave and then go to heaven. And three, that out of one blood, God created all the nations to dwell upon the earth. He came to bring them all together in one. Father Divine turns into a bit of a complicated character in this story in his own right. And I mean, there was a lot of research to be done on him. I had to cut it off at some point. He could probably have his own episode. At some point, a judge handed Father Divine a prison sentence for being a public nuisance. But shortly after that sentencing, that judge dropped dead suddenly. And reportedly, Father Divine privately commented on his death saying, quote, I hated to do it. Interesting. Okay, so this Father Divine was like a like a role model for Jim, who's going to become more important down the road? Well, kind of. Not necessarily important to this story, um, but kind of growingly important, um, important as Jim kind of finds his own place in the religious community and kind of is growing his own following. He kind of wants to emulate a lot of what Father Divine is doing in his own Creepy. church. So we see right now his, his first two role models here are Hitler and then um, um, Murderous. Um, man. <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's got like one of the scariest traits for somebody that like has no ethics is like ambition because it seems like he mm. wants to like have not only like commit crimes himself, but have a big following. Yeah. So Father Divine had a lot of the same characteristics in his church that Jim wanted for his own. And so Jim ended up meeting with Father Divine often. When Father Divine died in 1965, there was a power vacuum in the religious community and hundreds of his followers were left without a leader. So Jim actually went to Father Divine's church, even claiming that he was a reincarnation of Father Divine himself. Mother Divine, Father Divine's wife, likely saw what was happening and kicked him out of the church, but some of Father Divine's followers went with him. Around this same time, Jim started becoming very paranoid about nuclear attacks. This was right as Cold War tensions started surfacing, so a lot of Americans, and really around the world, people around the world, had the same fear. But Jim's was different because it was a little more heightened and seemed a bit more paranoid, according to people who were around him at this time. He specifically warned his followers of an attack on July 15th, 1960. But to be clear, none ever came. So Jim looked into moving to California, and the reason why is because he read an article in Esquire that named Eureka, California as the safest place to live in America during a nuclear attack. And the reason the magazine says that is because it's west of the Sierras and more than 100 miles away from the nearest target. The other cities the magazine names is Cork, Ireland, Guadalajara, Mexico, Central Valley, Chile, Mendoza, Argentina, Belo Horizonte. Horizonte, Brazil, Tenerife, Madagascar, Melbourne, Australia, and Christchurch, New Zealand. Oh my gosh. Okay. Bookmarking this um, as places if I ever need to escape. <laughs> it didn't age well in 2023, <laughs> to be clear. Like, it probably yeah, still Yeah, as relevant. I was thinking, I was like, okay, there is something like really millennial about this, like trying to find a, a new home based on like mm. one singular like reason that you're really <laughs> like, I'm going to yes. go 
live in a tiny home and that can only be done in San Diego and that's why I'm going there. Like something like that. But let's <laughs> take it back a little bit. And did you ever watch that documentary Keep Sweet on Netflix? It was like people were so obsessed with it a little while ago. It was really like I don't think so. It was about like the fundamentalist like sect of the Jesus Christ like Latter-day Saints, but the one of like the the main villain in the story, I guess basically did the same thing, like, cooed this other guy when he died, came Mm. in and said, like, hey, I'm this guy reincarnated, you should just follow me. Mm. So I feel like it's a trend. That's so interesting. Well, I guess that's the way to, I mean, if you're, if you're, if you believe in that, I mean, that's the way to make your followers go with you. That's really, I had not heard of that. That is really interesting, though. And I guess, I mean, it seemed kind of odd to me, but I guess maybe, you know, not odd to the people who do this kind of thing. And it's like, they can't question it because if the, their old leader Mm. had believed that and then like this other person appeared. Right. Who's going to disagree with it. Mm. Did he like start over and have a new life? What happened? Yeah. So he left for Ukiah, California. And I'm I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, which is about three hours south of Eureka, but still named in that Esquire article as a safe place to live during a nuclear attack. About 70 to a hundred of his followers moved with him too. By the 1970s, Jim had built a following in the thousands. A large percentage of his followers were African American. He opened churches in San Francisco and Los Angeles, making friends with politicians and the press. But something is about to change in the church, more so for the people who were looking on from the outside. They're about to find out the church wasn't what it presented to the public. Jim gained his following by showing displays during these large sermons of mind reading and faith healing. And here, I'm going to play for you a video of one of Jim's sermons here. He is claiming to heal a woman's sight, and at the end, he appears to convince her that she no longer needs glasses. Give that little sweetheart a little bit of love. Thank you, baby. Now, take your glasses off. Just just dare in our faith. We've seen Sister Brown here who was blind, totally healed. Saw one of our sisters blind from her childhood. It could be hysterical blindness, whatever. We're not concerned. She was blind and could not see. Now, Look at my face. I'm going to hold up some fingers. You concentrate hard. I love you. The people love you. Most importantly, Christ loves you. What do you see? How many fingers? Three. You don't even need your glasses, child. Let's all let's all be thankful as she cries back there. Let's cry and rejoice with her. Wow. It reminds me of like 
magicians, like, immediately this is what I thought of, I think, because of, like, this book I recently read, but, like, he was, like, the da-da-da-da, the da-da-da-da-da-da, like, he said three things, and then she said three, and I'm, like, my my cynical brain is, like, she's a plant, like, she went in there, like, to show everybody else, but the sadder reality is that she was probably, like, brainwashed in, in, in a different way. Um, wow. He doesn't look like I expected him to look. Yeah. I mean, and that was the other thing. And, you know, cause I thought of, I, when I saw him for the first time, his face, I thought of Ted Bundy, um, and how he was able to convince all these, you know, women to, you know, follow him, you know, um, and eventually get murdered by him because he was so handsome, you know what I mean? And it's like, it's like, I feel like whenever I think of like a, like a serial killer, like, you know, these like deranged murderers, like they have to be like, you know, in their eighties, like no hair, like absolutely disheveled and like, like super long beard. Yeah. For the listener, he was like, like kind of like an Elvis type Mm -hmm. looking, like clean cut, dark hair. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, and it just kind of like blows my mind, I guess that like, I don't know, like, obviously, he is not healing these people's eyesights. I don't know. It's just odd. But, like, I can also see how, like, if I, you know, was somebody who, you know, believed in, you know, this deep, deep, um, you know, religious, um, you know, uh, philosophy that, like, yes, this, like, one man can actually do all these things. And, like, I could, like, almost convince myself that that, like, and, like, feeling so lost, hypothetically speaking, yes, you know what I mean? And, yeah. like, feeling the need for that community and, like, wanting to to do that. Like, I, you know, you almost can, yeah, I could, they were probably even convincing themselves that this was real. For sure. Like, I could definitely see myself in their shoes as, as mm-hmm. weird as it is. It's, like, the power of suggestion, even, like, mm-hmm. the power of peer, peer pressure, right? Like, you go out right. and you see, like, your, your two good friends in the same sweater. And then, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> how different is it from, like, going to church and you're mm-hmm. seeing, like, the two people on your right and left, like, nodding their head, like, yes, mm-hmm. the miracle's happening. Like, mm-hmm. you'd be like, oh, yeah, the miracle is happening. Right. Well, and also, <laughs> I would imagine it has to do with, you know, people had, a lot of people had felt the church had really changed their lives. A lot of them quit lives of crime and drugs, and I would imagine they felt this extreme sense of community, which, you know, in and of itself can be intoxicating. Behind the scenes, though, reporters start asking questions about some of the rumors of what was actually happening behind closed doors. They start asking about accusations of financial fraud, physical abuse, mistreatment of children, and even sexual assault. Jones was even arrested at one point in 1973 for lewd conduct in a Los Angeles movie theater, despite preaching abstinence. He was also reported to have been addicted to pharmaceutical drugs and apparently had been engaging in sexual relations with female and male members of the temple, despite claiming to be the, quote, only true heterosexual on earth, according to Rolling Stone. Wow, what a title. Mm, right. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was it was kind of bizarre because it was uh, it was like, you know, everybody else on Earth, like, you know, leans one way or leans the other. But like he was like the only person on Earth that was like a hardcore heterosexual, you know, straight man, but evidently not. Yeah. It makes me wonder even more so about like like we talked a little bit about his childhood and mm-hmm. like his influences and stuff. But like, man, you wonder like what created someone that yeah. like, thinks this way, like such narcissism and mm. um Like a god complex, too. Yeah. So, completely paranoid about the mask slipping and his massive operation, he chose to move to Jonestown, Guyana, a compound he had been building there for about three years. 
Several hundred of his followers came with him, too, while others stayed behind in California to continue operations of the temple in the United States. In Jonestown, the temple had created its own little city. They had their own government-style healthcare, education, and access to fire and police services. But apparently the abuse had continued. There were reports in Jonestown that members were regularly humiliated, beaten, and blackmailed. They were coerced into signing over their possessions to the church. They even had their passports confiscated. They were apparently forced into long days working in the field and harsh punishment if they questioned Jones' authority. They were convinced that if they left the church, they would be round up by the U.S. government into concentration camps. You know, when I think of this, like the concentration camp part, I, you know, think about how recent, at that point anyways, um, World War II was, um, you know, too. So, I mean, I would imagine that's probably much more realistic concern than maybe in 2023, um, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's a great point. And mm-hmm. just like the, re- like the farther removed they were from like the larger community like mm-hmm. larger america like the they probably had no idea like what was actually happening and like how mm-hmm. realistic that could be you know like he's their one source of information like they said like yeah all the the fire department the police like everything's within the, his commune bubble mm-hmm. yeah and also to like you know obviously using a lot of these scare tactics um you know i mean you don't know anything else so um, you know, the one person that is, you know, that you trust, um, you know, telling you that, that these horrible things are going to happen if you don't, if, you know, you don't follow me. Probably sounds pretty convincing. Yeah. I want to know, like, who started, like, getting curious and, like, poking at mm. it and getting in there. Yeah, well, you're about to find out, Deirdre, actually. Yes! So, over the next three years, word about the conditions in Jonestown makes its way back to the United States. The FBI gets wind of reports that members, American citizens, were being held against their will on the compound. Now, Deirdre, I would need a lot of wine to read everything the FBI would end up publishing about Jonestown at the end of its investigation. The FBI published 287 different documents on the Jonestown massacre, each dozens of pages long. I did not read what? all of these, How but they do Leo. live on the FBI's <laughs> website. <laughs> and I will link to these on our website as well if you are curious and have like a lot of time and probably a lot of wine. Oh yeah. Well, I do. So maybe. In all, the FBI finds sustained allegations of beatings, forced labor, imprisonment, drug abuse to control behavior, suspicious deaths, and rehearsals for mass suicide. Um, wait, what do you mean rehearsals for mass suicide? Is that like... (laughs) Yeah, so it's definitely a little eye-grabbing for sure and eyebrow-raising, so you're definitely not the only one to kind of, like, you know, side-eye that. Um, But I'm going to come back to this a later, little later on in the episode, so definitely hold that thought in all the questions you have in your uh, brain right okay. now. Okay, I'll try. So the U.S. government is becoming very alarmed by the situation in Jonestown. The State Department wrote in a report that the Guyanese government had no control over the Jonestown compound and appeared that they had a disinterest in interfering with the operations of the temple. So the U.S. government decides that maybe it's time to go take a visit to Jonestown, probably deciding that was the best way to make things a little bit better. But Deirdre, you're going to want to refill your glass again because they had no idea they were about to make things so much worse.
California Congressman Leo Ryan gets wind of his constituents' involvement in the temple, including the intense accusations of what they were experiencing in Jonestown. And it came in part from the parents of John Victor Stahn, who was six years old. He was born to Tim and Grace Stahn. They were married and followers of Jim. Jim claimed to be John's father, though, and Tim even signed an affidavit that confirmed this. Tim and Grace left the church in 1976, leaving John in the care of Jim. And when Jim went to Jonestown, he took John with him. When Tim and Grace heard of the accusations of what was going on in Jonestown, they tried to get custody of John back through the courts. But in case you couldn't tell already, Jim wasn't like a really big fan of the law, so he ignored several court orders to return John to the United States. Many believed John became a symbol of the temple, but more specifically of Jim's control over his followers. They believed Jim thought if he let John return to the United States, it would show that his grasp on the church was loosening. I am, like, shook that they were just, like, they left John with Jim. Like, I know, I know, like, cult brainwashing, like, very serious, but when it's parents and their kids, like, I still have Mm -hmm. a really hard time, like, suspending my, um like, understanding of that. Like, oh, Mm. I can't believe that makes me so... Well, and it almost, you know, kind of like what I was saying about how John became this, like, symbol of of Jim's control. Like, imagine being so enthralled by, you know, the message that this man was, was, you know, spewing that you are literally willing to sign over your firstborn, first and only born child to this man to just, like, yeah, do whatever, like, take him to Guyana. Like, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Things are escalating. Oh, so fast, and it's about to escalate even more, Deirdre. Congressman Ryan chooses to visit Jonestown himself, and he's pretty well known at this point for his first-hand investigative style. He arrived with staff, a group of reporters, and relatives of Temple members on November 14th, 1978. The visit appeared to go pretty well at first, but when the visit was over four days later, some members said they wanted to go back with Ryan, and Jim did not handle this well at all. As they tried to leave, other members attacked them with knives. I couldn't find anything that confirmed how many people may have died in this part of the attack, but Ryan and his staff survived and were able to leave the compound and head toward an airstrip. But as they were taking off, they were attacked again, but this time with gunfire. Five people died, including Ryan and three members of the press. Eleven people were injured. Wait, they just, like, open-fired on a congressman? Mm-hmm. I mean, at this point now, it's just, like, all bets are off. Like, they don't care mm-hmm. about the legal system whatsoever. Yeah. Well, and this definitely appears to be, I mean, evidently, is, like, the heightened version of, like, everything that, like, Jim and his followers and his, like, most close followers were building toward. And, like, this, like... Everything, like, everything was out the window at this point. Like, you know, it was, it was really just a matter of, like, what can we do to save face? Yeah. I wonder if he ever, I, we didn't talk about it, but, like, if he was ever, like, a preacher of, like, peace and stuff. And then, like, because mm. he is definitely extremely violent at this point. Yeah. So, I didn't know this, actually, but Jackie Spear was a member of Ryan's staff at the time and was also a victim in the attack. She was a member of Congress from California, representing much of the same area that Ryan did back in the 70s, but she actually retired during um, right before the last election in 2022. But sometime after the attack, she described Ryan as, quote, the real deal. 
Deirdre, did you take down my note to remember that practice of mass suicide rehearsals at the temple? Did that like stand out in your brain? I feel like it probably um, did. Yeah, like I'm still trying to imagine like what type of mass suicide, like how, what rehearsing? Is that necessary? Mm. Is that something that you do like preemptively? I thought it was something that just like happened in the moment. Completely paranoid by, by the attack, Jim released radio orders to everyone in the church, including members still in California, instructing them to follow through on the this rehearsal. Only this time, it was the real thing. Jim ordered everyone in the church to drink a fruit punch laced with cyanide, tranquilizers, and sedatives. And they do. The children go first. It's reported that the adults were ordered to squirt the punch into the mouths of children and infants before drinking it themselves. Some were reported to be forced to drink the punch by gunpoint, while others appeared to have been injected with the punch using needles. Wow. That's actually insane. Like, you have to wonder, like, what? At that point, like, that you're pushed like, to the very, like, pinnacle of your belief in him, right? So, like, they had absolutely no doubts. Yeah. Well, so, I also, you know, I feel like it's also important to, like, to, like the rehearsal part of it, too. Like, I feel like it's really important to remember because every, because they had been told to do this multiple times before, again, according to the FBI. And so, um, but apparently in those previous rehearsals, they were told that it was the real thing. Oh. And so they were like, yeah, you know, this is, you know, you know, they knew that it was poisoned and all this stuff, but like, it was really just like all a ruse to see like if when it came down to it, if they would actually oh fall God. through. And like, evidently it worked at least on most of these people. It was like a twisted fruit punch Russian roulette. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. So also, have you ever heard of the expression drinking the Kool-Aid? Yeah, 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 of course. So this is where that expression came from. It means you're going with something or someone that's just so far out there that no person in their right mind would go along with it, just like drinking poison fruit punch because the leader of your church told you to. Now, I should also say the punch wasn't actually Kool-Aid at all. It was kind of like an off-brand version <laughs> of it called Flavor-Aid. Are you paid to say that? Is that is that I, something? <laughs> I am not. Flavor-Aid definitely does not sponsor me Um. And I also should probably say probably doesn't really exist anymore if I venture, I guess. Bad press. Bad press. Probably. Yeah, bad yeah. press. Definitely bad PR. Definitely bad PR mm-hmm. for them. In all seriousness, note though, the survivors and family members of victims really dislike this expression. They say it's really insensitive to the tragedy they face and that it makes light of a situation that when it really boils down to it, it's a mass killing. And they really have every right to feel whatever they, way they want to. I mean, this was a brutal way to go and all at the hands of a man they, that they thought they could trust. Yeah, that's such a good point about, like, language and how we really don't understand a lot of times where stuff comes from. Like, I mean, so many phrases that I just say because, you know, my parents said them as I got older. I realized, like, you know, where it comes from. And that one I had no idea. So, wait, I'm still, like, a little bit concerned about John. Where is John? Is he still there? Did he kill his own son? Like, would he go that far? Yeah, so according to an article from San Diego State University, which has several extensive articles on the Jonestown Massacre, I would definitely recommend reading those. John Victor Stahn was still at the compound on the day of the massacre. The article says that some people fought back against Jim's orders, with one woman even pointing directly at John, saying you would even see him die. 
Guyanese officials showed up the next day to a scene I can promise you they still can't get out of their heads. Deirdre, I'm going to send you some of the pictures and I really just want you to brace yourself. Oh my God, that's so many more people than I thought. Oh my God. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, heartbreaking because it like, you know, I, I picture like in 2023, like mass shootings. And that's kind of what it looks like. But, like, all these people look like they were just in their, like, regular, everyday clothes, like, completely, basically untouched. Yeah, and it's, like, they're... It, just kind the, of makes me sad. The, like, area that they encompass, that's just, like, bodies. Mm. And because mm-hmm. you imagine, like, they're... A lot of it is, like, some people distributing it to other people. So, like, they're really close mm-hmm. next to each other. Like, it kind of looks like everybody was, like, in a group hug and then fell mm. down like over a, mm-hmm. a big area. It's it's really scary. Creepy. Yeah. So when they first showed up, they see hundreds of bodies, some with their hands still around each other, appearing to shield their loved ones from the horror that was creeping their way. Guyanese officials first think there are about 400 bodies, then 500, then 600, then 700, And they land on a final estimated count of 909 to 918 people who lost their lives. It's the largest loss of American life until 9-11. Oh my god. So obviously like the largest mass suicide in known history, probably, right? Oh, I'm sure it is. I mean, I don't even know of any other mass suicides. So So that means, like, he's the strongest, strongest is a terrible word for it, but, like, most um, manipulative, like, successfully Mm -hmm. manipulative cult leader of all time. Did John survive? Like, did he survive? Did he do it with them at the end? Did anyone survive? So, no. So, John is, um, does, is one of the casualties. So is Jim Jones, though, as well. We're about to get to that in a second. Some people were able to make it out of the temple safely, though. 11 members walked 35 miles to the capital of Guyana in Georgetown to escape before the mass suicide. Another woman reported that she slept through the whole thing before waking up to the carnage the next day. All in all, San Diego State University estimates 87 people were able to survive, either because they escaped or simply refused to participate. I like to think that I would be someone that, like, would refuse to precipitate, but um, it's literally impossible to know. It's more likely I would sleep through it accidentally. <laughs> to <laughs> make light I of a horrible that for you. In, uh, scenario. But, uh, so yeah. 87 out of, like, 1,000, basically. Mm-hmm, pretty much. Yeah. What happened to um, Jim? That's what I want to know. I want to get some closure here. So Jim Jones also died in the massacre, but he was found to have died from a gunshot wound instead. There are conflicting reports about how he died, but it's believed he either killed himself or had his nurse, Annie Moore, shoot him before she turned the gun on herself. When American investigators arrived to survey the scene, they found guns, hundreds of passports stacked together, and $500,000 in cash. They also found millions of dollars had been deposited in bank accounts overseas, and I think it's safe to assume that money belonged to at least some of the temple members. Police also found at least two farewell letters written the day of the massacre. One is unsigned, but it's 
is believed to have been written by a man named Richard Trapp. And Deirdre, I want to ask you to read it for us. Um, Sure. It says, to whomever finds this note, collect all the tapes, all the writing, all the history. The story of this movement, this action must be examined over and over. It must be understood in all of its incredible dimensions. Words fail. We have pledged our lives to this great cause. We are proud to have something to die for. We do not fear death. We hope that the world will someday realize the ideals of brotherhood, justice, and equality that Jim Jones has lived and died for. We have all chosen to die for this cause. We know there is no way that we can avoid misinterpretation, but Jim Jones and this movement were born too soon. The world was not ready to let us live. I am sorry there is no eloquence as I write these final words. We are resolved but grieved that we cannot make the truth of our witness clear. This is the last day of our lives. May the world find a way to a new birth of social justice. If there is any way that our lives and the life of Jim Jones can ever help that take place, we will not have lived in vain. Jim Jones did not order anyone to attack or kill anyone. It was done by individuals who had too much of seeing people try to destroy this movement, Jim Jones. Their actions have left us no alternative, and rather than see this cause decimated, we have chosen to give our lives. We are proud of that choice. Please try to understand. Look at all. Look at all in perspective. Look at Jonestown. See what we have tried to do. This was a monument to life, to the renewal of the human spirit, broken by capitalism, by a system of exploitation and injustice. Look at all that was built by a beleaguered people. We did not want this kind of ending. We wanted to live, to shine, to bring light to a world that is dying for a little bit of love. To those left behind of our loved ones, many of whom will not understand, who never knew this truth, grieve not. We are grateful for this opportunity to bear witness, a bitter witness. History has chosen our destiny in spite of our own desire to forge our own. We are at a cross slash purpose with history, but we are calm in this hour of our collective leave-taking. As I write these words, people are silently amassed, taking a quick potion, inducing sleep, relief. We are long-suffering people. Many of us are weary with a long search, a long struggle, going back not only in our own lifetime, but a long, painful heritage. Please see the histories of our people that are in a building called Teacher's Resource Center. Many of us are now dead. Each moment, another passes over to to a piece. We are begging only for some understanding. It will take more than small minds, reporters' minds, to fathom these events. Something must come of this. Beyond all the circumstances surrounding the immediate event, someone can perhaps find the symbolic, the internal, in this moment, the meaning of a people, a struggle. I wish I had time to pull it all together, that I had done it. I did not do it. I failed to write the book. Someone else, others will have to do this. Please study this movement from the very origins of Jim Jones in the rural poverty of Indiana, out from the heart of the America that he later was to stand against for its betrayal of its ideals. These are a beautiful people, a brave people, not afraid. There is a quiet we leave this world. <laughs> the sky is gray. People file slowly and take the somewhat bitter drink. Many more must drink our destiny. It is sad that we could not let our light shine in truth, unclouded by the demons of accident, circumstance, miscalculation, error that was not our intent, beyond our intent. I hope that someone writes this whole story. It is not news, it is more. We merge with millions of others. We are succumbed in the archetype. People hugging each other, embracing, we are hurrying. We do not want to be captured. We want to bear witness at once. 
We did not want it this way. All was going well as Ryan completed his first day here. Then a man tried to attack him unsuccessfully at some time. Several set out into the jungle wanting to overtake Ryan, aid, and others who left with him. They did, and several killed. When we heard this, we had no choice. We would be taken. We have to go as one. We want to live as people's temple or end it. We have chosen. It is finished. Hugging and kissing and tears and silence and joy in a long line. Touches and whispered words as the silent line passes. Determination, purpose, a proud people. Only last night their voices raised in unison, a voice of affirmation, and today a different sort of affirmation, a different dimension of that same victory of the human spirit. A tiny kitten sits next to me, watching. A dog barks. The birds gather on the telephone wires. Let all the story of this people's temple be told. Let all the books be opened. This sight of terrible victory. How bitter that we did not, could not, that James Jones was crushed by a world that he didn't make. How great the victory. If nobody understands, it matters not. I am ready to die now. Darkness settles over Jonestown on its last day on Earth. So what do you make of that whole letter? It's crazy. Like, a lot of it sounds like, like, you know, he's about to die in his last day, like, ramblings, but... Also, it's just very sad because he believed he was dying for a reason. And um, like in the beginning, we talked about how these people were able to to be kind of brainwashed because they had such a longing for community. And it's clear that he did find community. Yeah. So some people um, question whether this was actually written by Richard because this was obviously very defensive of Jim and the church. And the day of the massacre, Richard was seen arguing with Jim about the orders for mass suicide. But Richard also died in the massacre. So I guess we'll never really know. After the massacre, the rest of the temple disbanded. Members who refused to take part in the mass suicide left the church and never looked back. With Jim Jones gone, there are few people to take responsibility for the killings. Larry Layton is the only person to ever be charged with anything in direct connection to the massacre. He pleads guilty to conspiracy, aiding and abetting in the murder of Ryan, and attempted murder of U.S. Ambassador Richard Dwyer, but he is not formally charged with straight-up murder. He was sentenced to life in prison, but was released in 2002. Charles Bikeman also receives charges, but not related to the mass suicide. He was in Georgetown at the time, which is Guyana's capital. He pled guilty to the attempted murder of a young girl and served five years in prison in Guyana. Whew, wow, that's shocking. I mean, all that you want is justice for these people that have died, and there's no way to really get that. Yeah, so decades later, survivors still look fondly on the organization, saying it had a good message but it was just led by the wrong person. But some survivors and family members really have a hard time moving on, as I'm sure you can imagine. Children of victims struggle to understand their lineage fully, which is a difficult way to live. Survivors develop a complicated meaning of community, and one woman even said she was, quote, angry at God because he let her live. The massacre left so many survivors and family members just lost, confused, and distraught. Some survivors 
ended up killing themselves also. Mike Prokes was a survivor of the massacre and a staunch supporter of the temple. Not long after the massacre, he called a press conference to defend Jim in the temple and then was found with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head in his hotel room. Al and Jean Mills, who were prominent opponents and former members of the temple, were, were killed in Berkeley, California in 1980, and that case is still unsolved to this day. Paula Adams, a former member of the temple, was murdered with her child in 1983. Lawrence Mann was convicted of her murder. He was a former Guyanese ambassador to the United States who would later commit suicide. In 1984, Tyrone Mitchell fired a rifle at a Los Angeles schoolyard. He killed one person, injured more than 10 others before turning the gun on himself. He was left behind in the United States by his family who followed Jim all the way to Guyana and his entire family was killed in the massacre. That is something else. It's like a whole like a spider web, like a legacy of horror. Mm-hmm. Like even people who were barely like touched by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just named like ten people of like what eighty seven. I think we said who survived, and like you know these deeply troubled people. I mean, I can't imagine the complicated feelings you must have about you know knowing what happened to you know what could have happened to you or happened to your family members. Yeah, seriously. Well, Deirdre, that is all we have for this story. Thank you so much for coming on this week. I had such a great time with you catching up and drinking wine and talking about crime. Of course, me too. Um, I will have nightmares tonight, but worth it to see your face. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this was a crazy one. I think now that we've talked through the whole thing, I definitely had heard of it, but I didn't know all the intricacies. And even like drinking the Kool-Aid, I would have, I, I feel like I probably would have said that before. So also a learning experience and so much fun to talk yeah so tell everyone where they can find you and your work online um sure if you ever need any um digital marketing needs you can find me at gofishdigital.com and i'll um i'll promote my dog's instagram here too (laughs) (laughs) that's really what i was waiting for for being honest um, why i decided to come on but he his instagram is oof my floof o-o-f my floof um he's an adorable pomsky um who deserves your follow so (laughs) thanks liam thank you everyone i love I really, I think my favorite part of that was how you spelled oof. I mean, some people get it wrong. <laughs> I don't was... want you to follow the wrong Pomsky. Right, right, right. Yeah, that would be really embarrassing. Yes, really, really embarrassing for everybody. Well, Deirdre, thank you so much for coming on and for Benji for making a little cameo in that. And thank you all so much for listening. We are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories too. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and we will see you next week for another episode of Crime Over Wine. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.